everybody, and welcome to the next episode of the Biodiversity Podcast by Teasels. And today I'm joined by uh, John Lockhart and uh, Joe Alderton. Uh, John, do you just want to give a brief introduction to yourself? And uh, yeah, we'll start the podcast there. Oh, brilliant. Okay, yes. John Lockhart, I'm a principal consultant at Nicholson's Lockhart Garrett. And uh, many of you may have known me through. Uh, uh, Lockhart Garrett. We were a forestry and environmental planning a business. We merged with Nicholson's, the nursery business, in January. Really excited about that collaboration. It's bringing together sort of uh, two companies with similar values and similar aspirations to um, really make a difference in the environmental space. And um, um, uh, I've been in this sector for my whole working career. I'm a chartered surveyor, but I've strayed across into other areas, uh, basically on need and on demand, and uh, focused really on trying to help uh, our client base and uh, the stakeholders uh, understand the interfaces between different parties in the environmental space. So I end up sort of uh, taking on a translator role sometimes <laughs> and uh, having to sort of uh, working with others, including Joe, who will introduce herself in a minute, um, you know, to help that understanding and help people navigate what is a very complicated, both legislative and, um, you know, practical space right. uh, to try and come up with solutions that are genuine and sustainable going forward. Great stuff, great stuff. Joe, um, uh, do you want to introduce yourself and how you fit into the uh, company? Yeah, so um, I'm Jo Alderton. Um, I joined Lockhart Garrett in 2014 mm. um, in the ecology team. Um, I've been here ever since, sort of working with um, Lockhart Garrett and now Nicholson's Lockhart Garrett. Um, and I now manage the ecology team. Um, there's nine of us now, so we're sort of a growing team. We're still quite small, but um, across the Northamptonshire and Oxfordshire offices. Um, and our main remit is really to fit into all the things that John's been talking about, um, supporting clients with mainly development needs in terms of ecological survey work, but also now much more moving into that sort of land owner space. So looking at trying to support um, landowners with how they can manage their land in a way that is sustainable and genuinely good for the environment. Yeah. Um, and yeah, trying to sort of um, advise as best we can on that. Like John said, it's it's quite difficult to navigate, <laughs> and there are lots of different sorts of arms to it. So, yeah, that's um, our main remit. Well, I'm, I'm laughing as you said that because I was listening, I was earwigging, not listening, into your conversation <laughs> earlier, and uh, when you in the uh, in the um, coffee room over there, and it was and it was interesting that you are t to your to what you were saying, you are that translator, aren't you? And you know, you're trying to find that solution for 50 different stakeholders and trying to make it work. Mm. Um, but you mentioned about the ecological space and I don't think we could do a podcast on the ecological space without mentioning uh, the monolith that is biodiversity net gain. Mm. Um, if you can, John, could you sort of sum up the kind of many strands, if you can at this point, the many strands of biodiversity net gain and kind of, um, yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, I'll do the. I'll do my best. Um, as I say, I'm not the. I'm not the technician <laughs> in this space. But what I want to do is to try and sort of give people that broad understanding, and then I can pass over to Joe, who can who can pick up and sort of make sure that we've filled the gaps in in the in the, in the technical space. I think uh, sort of for a long time. Um, there has been pressure within the policy environment and within the stakeholder environment to make sure that, in particular, development activity leaves the environment in a better state after it's completed its work than it was before. And so you've had policies that have come about over the years and the MPPF set the, uh, set the original um, uh, aspiration that development was going to deliver a net gain undefined and un sort of specified as to how that was going to happen but it sits there in that core <laughs> policy. Yeah. At the same time we also had the 25-year environment plan. Hugely um, ambitious document that government was putting in place to support its aspiration to leave the environment in a better condition than it found it 
still a lot of work to do. The Natural Capital Committee was reporting on that, now been disbanded, but had been reporting on that since 2012. And effectively, the school reports were saying, not doing particularly well, could do better. And one of the key things that came about in those conversations was the need to put in place real legislation to make these changes happen. We saw that in relation to carbon and in relation to net zero with the change in the legislation and the aspiration to get to a net zero position by 2050, which obviously I think surprised people as to how much that is starting to influence decisions. I mean, the obvious one, the most high profile one was Heathrow Airport, where I think people thought, oh, it's just going to go through on the nod, judicial review or whatever on the basis that no, it didn't meet the government's legal obligations. So we were starting to see that legislative environment biting. Um, the environment bill, which eventually, after an awfully long period, passed into law last year, um, has given us more certainty in this space around biodiversity net gain. Because what it has done, as it said by 2023, the, uh, about the end of 2023, development is going to have to um, meet that mandatory target of 10% biodiversity net gain. So what that means is the development will have to be assessed, the site will have to be assessed prior to the development taking place. And if there has been habitat change since the uh, instigation of the original bill, which I think January 2020, Joe? Yeah. yeah, January 2020, um, if there has been significant habitat change, then that needs to be taken into account. But needing to be able to demonstrate that when the development is completed and when all of the work has been completed, that it will leave the environment in a condition that's 10% better than you started. That's a minimum. Is that, is that's, that's a minimum. Okay. That's the minimum mandatory requirement. And it is for virtually all developments, although smaller developments and some infrastructure projects, there are different rules. But there's now a metric for smaller sites. And I mentioned the metric there because obviously if you're going to bring proof that a development is actually delivering that 10% net gain, you need a mechanism that is well understood and is clear for people to be able to assess where they started, where they will finish up, and whether or not that delivers that 10% net gain. And DEFRA, working with many partners across the sector, have been developing that metric we're now at version three, and it's just had a, a small amendment in the last few weeks, yeah. hasn't it? Yeah. Um, but that metric looks at the habitats on a site. It gives a, it puts a number to the biodiversity position, and it it, it, it records how that biodiversity is recorded, and, and it gives a gives a clarity to that level. And then you're able to look at the habitats that are going to be created through the development process and where you end up. And if you are unable to meet your requirements on the site that you are looking at, then you need to be looking elsewhere. You need to either be going to one of the habitat banks or and, 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 and sourcing credits, as they're going to be called, from those sites. There, there, there are a lot of rules associated around those. We'll maybe speak, speak about those a bit later. But you're going to have to make sure that you can give the planning authority certainty and the stakeholders certainty that that minimum requirement will be, there, will be met. But also there may be, and a lot of developers and a lot of clients are now saying, well, we want to go better. We want to do better. Mm -hmm. And so they're actually setting internal targets mm -hmm. that push them beyond the 10%, which is quite interesting. Yeah. And also you've got a general understanding that although this formal mandatory requirement is not going to come in for what year and a half still isn't I think it is um, you people are already starting to take that 10% both on the stakeholder side and on the development side and saying we want to meet that target in the meantime so the starting point as you mentioned the starting point is that finding that baseline isn't it yeah so Joe, do you want to, so on this sort of the technical aspect, so uh, so you, you turn up on the site and you're looking yeah. at the baseline. Now correct me if I'm wrong, this shouldn't be done as a desktop study. You should need to be go to site to actually assess the condition of the habitat. Is that? Yeah, that's correct. So this is, 
there's kind of two elements to it. You can do an initial feasibility study for, for um, a site, which can be done desktop based. So, you know, Google Earth, what did we do before <laughs> Google Earth? Um, you know, we can have a good look at the site. We can see from Google Earth or other aerial mapping facilities that generally um, the, the types of habitats we're expecting to find on the site. So you could give a client a rough idea of, of what their baseline is going to be from that. And that's a really good cost-effective initial way to look at a site because, as we always say, engagement at a really early stage on this on particularly with biodiversity net gain is key. Um, personally, I really like to try and push clients to, to deliver their biodiversity net gain as much as possible within their red line. So as much as, as John explained, we can go off site and we can buy credits. Um, any stakeholder, any local authority will be looking at a planning application and expecting a client to have really maxed out their site as much as possible. You know, going off site is your kind of almost last resort. So they will be looking um, for us to follow not only that, the... And that's in the hierarchy, so that's... It is, yeah. Okay. So, so alongside the metric, you have your biodiversity yeah. principles. And one of those key ones is the mitigation hierarchy. Yeah, yeah. So that initial one is avoidance. So, you know, you're looking to see what habitats you've got. So if I've got a fantastic woodland, I'm going to, you know, I can see from aerial mapping, I've got a great woodland on here. I'm going to be saying to the client, you really can't be building in there. If you if you are, we've got some serious work to do. Um, avoidance and then minimising the loss. So, okay, you are going to build in the woodland. How much can we reduce? Can we make sure that it's the poorer parts of the woodland, perhaps the bit that's just a bit of sort of scruffy edge that actually isn't the really high quality woodland in the centre. Um, and then after that, then you've got your mitigation compensation. So actually, okay, we can't avoid that. How are we going to mitigate? We're going to mm. have to build, some, um, build, create some more woodland elsewhere. Can we can we do some planting, ideally in advance, on the site, elsewhere? So yeah, desktop initially, and then you would go to site and actually look at the woodland or grassland or whatever habitats there, and go, okay, yeah, brilliant. Aerial maps was correct, and uh, I can have interpreted it correctly. It is this, but what condition is it? And in the metric, which is, in effect, a glorified Excel spreadsheet, <laughs> a very big one, um, you, you, there are a few strands to it. So the initial point is your habitat. You identify your habitat type. So grassland, but what type of grassland is it? You know, what indicator species in there? So you need your botany in there. You need to make sure you've got an idea of what plant communities are there in order to correctly determine the habitat. And then on top of that, you then have the condition. So we have a set of condition criteria that we have to then go, okay, is it heavily grazed? Is it, um, you know, do we have um, a lot of scrub encroachment? Are there sort of, um, as they call them, pernicious or undesirable species? <laughs> so a lot of, lot of thistle or um, ragwort or things like that in there that are actually bringing down the quality of the grassland. And as you can imagine, a really well-managed grassland that species rich is going to score incredibly high on the metric, whereas a heavily grazed, very heavily fertilised kind of pasture mm. grassland will score very low. So that can massively affect your baseline. So you're right, you've got your desktop, you could say, oh, it's grassland. But then the detail really does make a difference to your baseline. Mm. So, so then, so that's, and then, how do you guys fit in? Because I guess bringing you guys in or bringing an ecologist in at, at a really early stage, I guess that gives, from a client's point of view, that gives them sort of their sort of opportunity. So opportunities and risks associated with clients. Yeah, yeah, exactly that. So that sort of feasibility, as we would term it, you can then do your constraints and opportunities. So you can say to them, look, your developable area ideally should be focused in the poorer habitat, mm. um, red line blob here, yeah. and they go, oh, that's not going to work, it's a conversation then, how can we do this, what could we do instead? Also bringing in the landscape architects and saying to them what kind of things could, you know, are you thinking about drainage engineers, because obviously we're really keen on trying to understand managing water within the site as well, all of that, it yeah, all yeah. sort of fits in. Um, so, you know, bringing in everyone really involved on the project and going, how is this going to work? It's all well and good me going, oh, no, you can't build in the woodland, you know, but actually, practically, what do you need to make this site work? We've mm. got to be, yeah. to some extent, commercial and realistic about this. But also, how can we make sure we've followed that hierarchy, make sure we've maximised 
what we've got on the site, and then how can we sort of move forward from there. But it, it, it's kind of, kind of exciting because in, in a way that if you are bringing in different disciplines, it's when you were talking about water management, I thought literally a sun swale, yeah. and how that can be integrated uh, into a, uh, into a mm. scheme, and therefore you talk about being commercial, how a you know a well designed suds uh, retention pool around you know around uh, development how that can add to the amenity value. Yeah, so I I think what we're seeing at the moment is the requirement, the mandatory requirement, is raising the environmental performance mm -hmm. of a project up the agenda. Yeah. So it has done a huge amount in raising its status. So it now is right up there with transport, with utilities, with all of the other things that, that need to be uh, considered. And in parallel with the work that's going on and the, the requirements that are coming forward for biodiversity net gain, you're separately seeing some organisations trying to say, well, we should be building better. We should be trying to do things better. And one of, the one of the areas that has taken this forward a long way is the Building with Nature standard that has come out of the Gloucestershire Wildlife Trust and working with uh, various other agencies. And what it tries to do is it says, right, how can we do this, this whole thing better for the environment? How can we work with nature across the whole range of green infrastructure requirements? So not just biodiversity, but all of the other natural capital, ecosystem services areas, health and well-being, all of the things that we talk about all of the time. And what this has meant is if it's plugged in early enough to projects, and we are starting to see developers saying, well, how do we approach this? And we're saying, well, this is a good way of bringing all those disciplines together and actually starting to have a conversation around the whole environmental piece. So if we're able to start those conversations early and we're able to bring all of the technical disciplines that are involved in these projects, which are m you know, numerous. Um, Joe mentioned landscape architects, but we're also talking about the drainage engineers. We're talking about the highways engineers. We're talking about the... Um, the actual construction and the master planning of the site and the way that it's thought about in, its, in, in the round. If we can start bringing all of those disciplines together, thinking about how they can develop the site to, yes, ensure that it is functional. It provides the place that it needs to. There is no point in us creating high-value biodiversity habitats at the places where kids need to go out and kick a football around. That, is, that doesn't work. So you have to make sure that the place is designed with biodiversity in mind, with landscape in mind, with all of these other green infrastructure requirements in mind. But the mandatory requirement that the Environment Bill has brought into play, or the Environment Act has brought into play, has meant that those things, raising up the agenda, has started those conversations. And that's a really exciting and interesting place. So are you having those conversations earlier now? Because I'm, I'm in, perhaps I'm inferring that once upon a time, you know, the ecology was the afterthought, and you came in, you know, two weeks to go before the end of the for the planning application. Are you are you, are you finding your it's it's a lot earlier stage now where you are? <laughs> I, well, I, I, I guess uh, the answer to that is two 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 pronged. Um, in a lot of cases, yes, but the the sector could do better, and I think. The earlier we can get involved, if you can be involved at the time of discussions around strategic land, about how people are thinking about bringing forward site for development, the earlier they can start thinking about their ecological footprint and how they're going to address the ecological issues, the less abortive work is going to be involved, which is a, a big bonus for everybody. Nobody likes doing something that then has to be torn down and you have to start again. That is hugely frustrating. It wastes everybody's time and it causes a lot of stress that could be avoided. So planning, thinking early, getting a framework in place that everybody understands, making sure all of the technical disciplines understand their role and how they can contribute and how they can be part of the solution rather than part of the problem is, is hugely um, valuable. Also, what you're finding is that it flags up where issues are going to come and where you're going to have issues with time constraints. Mm -hmm. 
you will have no doubt heard in many of your biodiversity podcasts about there are time limits for the surveys and Joe much better briefed on this but they are quite short time windows and if you miss those time windows then potentially there is a lot of delay mm -hmm. if you're identifying those opportunities and risks as early as you possibly can you avoid a lot of those those problems one thing that was useful yesterday we were talking about a very large project that we're involved with where we've taken the project through the building of the nature standard and talking to the landscape architects and some of the consultants that are advising the local authority and the stakeholders it was really pleasing to see how they were saying oh this engagement this collaborative working this obviously a solution based mm. approach that has been taken from the start of this project is helping from everybody's perspective and when you've got consultants that are advising the local authority saying that and coming back to you on that you think well the client should see the value in that we certainly do because it makes our life a lot easier but there is real value in terms of timing in terms of success of schemes in terms of the way that those schemes are brought forward to maximize the benefits that everybody is trying to achieve a lot of developers are thinking, oh, I want to improve my carbon performance. I want to improve my environmental performance. They're being asked by their clients, the people that are coming in to take these properties, whether it be dom domestic property or whether it be commercial property. People are much more concerned now about the environmental performance of those projects. And so if a client is able to say, yeah, we are doing this, we're being independently assessed, we're thinking about it right from the start. Here's the audit trail. Mm. It, it, it really helps. And, um, you know, so I, I see it as a real win-win. But um, come back to your original question, are we getting involved early enough? Sometimes, but could do better. <laughs> <laughs> so, but, but at that early stage, because I, I, I think it's a point I'd, I'd like to raise you, Joe. It's like, so we... we we talk about getting, getting involved from an early stage and that baseline. When does, where is that point in time where that baseline is taken? Is that sort of a discussion you guys have with the local planning authority? Do you, you know, is it up to you guys as a consultant? Where, where does that line, where is that line in the sand drawn? It's a, Ooh, a tricky it? question. <laughs> <laughs> so as John mentioned earlier, so when the environment bill came forward, it, it does state that January 2020, I think it's the 3rd of January 2020, yeah, yeah. it's got a specific date. So no baselines can be prior to that date. Okay. So any baselines that we take have to be after that date. And generally, you know, before all of this came along, um, a client would go, right, I'm, I'm looking to potentially develop on this land. Um, so they would need a, a habitat survey anyway, that would be your initial go-to. You do your phase one or UK Hab or habitat survey, and you would be looking at what habitats are on the site you'd be looking again at all the things i've just talked about and in fact quite often we do them in tandem anyway because we will be going to the site we'll be having a look around are there any badger sets have we got any trees that might have bat potential so we'll be doing all of that all really as part of the whole application so that's really when you take your baseline um i guess potentially dan what you're alluding to is there could potentially be issues where um clients have artificially altered the baseline so that is a, a potential <laughs> a potential risk equally we have clients where um we had one recently where it was arable land that again as john said when talking about abortive work it was arable land up until last year and they decided they wanted to put in some houses on there it'd been left for the year That's, yeah that was another strand to that so you know yeah up and yeah and so actually when we came to look at it we were like we can't assess this as arable land now because it's got some grasses starting to grow through on it so we had to assess it as um, a modified grassland which was then a lot higher baseline than if it had still yeah. been managed as arable so there are two elements there's an element of clients continuing to manage land until we take that baseline in the proper way in the way that it w has always been managed mm. um, and then there's also an element of going to sites and going mm, this has definitely been cleared recently you know this doesn't look quite right and again aerial mapping is your friend then you can go and look at yeah. some historic data and you can go this definitely was scrub or possibly woodland or something you know you can have a look and go this wasn't like this 
a few years ago or mm. even more recently um it is a fine balance and mm. it's mm. sort of one of there's no like you said there's no line in the sand it's just really when the client says to you right i need you to come and look at this site i think one of the things that is enshrined in the legislation around the that commencement date from the environment bill is that if it is clear that there has been a negative change yeah. in the habitat so in other words if you have got a google earth photograph of that site that shows scrub and mosaic habitat on it at the date that the bill was published um, and then they come and look at a cleared site that is an issue so that manipulation of habitat is an issue I think one of the things that has been frustrating for a lot of projects over many many years is the fact that as land comes forward for development it is invariably a long process there's a long process of survey there's a long process of the planning there's a long process of the implementation and so your time from when you first look at the land through to when things happen is uh, <coughs> often many many years and and the, and the case that Joe cites of where a site was arable and then it is converted is um, uh, you know is, is not uncommon but in many ways people want to have the flexibility to allow habitats to develop as interim habitats without feeling that they're going to be penalized in the biodiversity space in the biodiversity net gain space so I think we're very keen to say to people and this comes back to the point you were making earlier about when do you start speaking to people and when do you start doing things getting involved early getting that baseline understood and recorded early and then having a conversation with the local authority which Joe and I've had on a number of occasions to say can we formally register this baseline for biodiversity so that if we do start to manipulate habitats we do start to allow interim habitats to develop as part of the project we're not penalized in that biodiversity net gain space mm. and we've had a lot of very positive comments back from local authorities and other stakeholders and I remember Joe we had one discussion where the comment was we have been trying for Lord knows how long to get developers and, and, and projects to actually deliver the green infrastructure to deliver the environmental habitats as soon as possible mm. why would we then put in place a structure which is going to penalize people that have allowed that to happen and so I think it's very important that there is that formal recognition of that. I think that it's very important that that's recorded with the local authority. One of the things and that, that's the, so that's yeah, well, we don't know yet how it's how exactly. One of the things I was just going to say is the consultation on how all of this is going to work um, finished in April. Was that right? Yeah. And then they they've still to report and come back. But one of the things that was very clearly flagged in that and, and signposted in that was the need to have a structure to agree and record a baseline mm. on a register or with the local authority or however it's going to be. So we're hoping that that mechanism will come forward and will be clear. At the moment it is down to individual site uh, promoters, landowners, planning consultants and so on to actually formally take control of that process, have those conversations, get the exchange of letters from local authorities and so on. But I think, Joe, we would very much say to people, as soon as you're starting to think about a site, get an understanding of what the baseline is and try and get that recorded so that you have that set in, 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 in stone or at least you've got it formally recorded for, for your discussions going forward. I mean, Joe, do you want to add anything to no, that? No, I was just saying, I think when you're talking about manipulation of habitat, what we're talking about is advanced planting. So we record the baseline. We're not talking about manipulation in terms of doing anything yeah. untoward no. or, or, or anything that would make the baseline poorer. What we're talking about is Very much so. baseline and then advanced planting, which actually is recognised now in the metric. Um, so you so it gives you additional points as such. If you are doing some advanced woodland planting, for example. Because I guess for you guys, you perhaps with certain clients, you work. they've probably got a land bank and they're not going to lay the first brick until 10 15 years down the line is that what you're finding but yeah or big, the big phase developments yeah. particularly and, and i think again it all goes back to what you know john mentioned earlier about that place for people to live so you know you might be building out phase one but actually if you could do your advanced screening woodland 
um, creation or some nice grassland creation that's going to be part of your green infrastructure plan because obviously you have your big master plan for phase two and, and or phase three four or five whatever then actually by the time you then go to build in those areas you've got a really nice landscape or a, yeah. a developing landscape that people are going to want to live in and it, it's not I think the days of those sort of you know toy town type of developments with the really newly planted trees that are wilting a little bit in their tree guards hopefully are, are sort of in the we past. We want to see it. Yeah. We want to see it. People want to move into a mature yep. landscape. They want to move into a site where they've already got, you know, they don't have to be aware of the grass seed <laughs> that's only just been laid. You know, they want the kids to be able to play in in a, a more natural environment. So, yeah, that is really, a, the metric does recognise that. And again, and it all fits in with the biodiversity principles. Again, the sort of main principles of biodiversity in it again. So, yeah. Interesting. Because as you were, as you were thinking, I'm thinking. I think we can all think of examples where that ha you know the master planning and the forward planning um, has been really thought of, and they are places where people can live and live live beside nature. And I guess, but, but there are, are unfortunately, you know, the scout the scout <laughs> landscapes with the with the whip, that's yeah. like 45 degrees. Yeah. Um. So you you both mentioned it earlier about this uh, this on site off-site uh, mitigation if we can if we, <coughs> if we can touch on that for a bit um you know speaking personally you know i come from cambridge and cambridge county council have done some really good uh, they've got a really good um off-site um lower lower farm just outside of cambridge where they've opened that up for you know developers to 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 to, to offset um what are your what are your feelings on that space because you know you hear that sometimes people say well it's better it's better in people's opinions it's better to, to do it off-site because you know because um, it's better to, it can be monitored better than you know the money is going into the hands of people that can manage it for that you know for 30 years and hopefully longer um, where yeah where do you guys sit on that off-site on-site I, th I think it's 100% site dependent and I think as much as, like I said earlier, personally, I'd rather try and maximise the red line and sort of say to clients, look, let's really try and, and I think they still have to do that. You have to follow your mitigation hierarchy. You can't just go, do you know what? We haven't got space on here. We're going to go offsite. Um, you've still got to demonstrate that you've done what you can within your red line. However, you're exactly right. Going off-site sometimes is a better option because if you've got quite a small site, then doing a little... The, the whole point of talking about the sort of Lawton principles and better connected mm. spaces, mm. Um, bigger, you know, better connected. If you're doing these habitat banks or really good habitat creation that's then connecting into existing yeah. nature recovery areas and, and that's all part of the Environment Act as well. Um, then actually the benefits of that can massively outweigh a little bit of scrub planting mm. on a small development yeah. or a small site. And um, again, the metric is a spreadsheet. The key part is the actual implementation and the management of those habitats. So talking about condition assessments, we were talking about the baseline. Post-development, obviously I have to put in there what habitats are going to come out of the development and of what condition they are going to be in. That is all dependent upon the management of those habitats. And as you say again... We're too early in that process, aren't we? Because I hear that you know people think, in, in certain people's opinions, well, as soon as a site gets handed over, broadly speaking, let's say it's on a, a residential site, somebody takes over, uh, a management company take over, they put out a maintenance contract, and perhaps the people maintaining the, the, the grounds don't have the skill set to maintain it to uh, that to that prescribed condition. All the information. Sometimes yeah. it's just a, you know I write these management plans for c conditions on planning applications all the time, saying ideally this grassland is supposed to be sort of wildflower meadow. It should only be mowed a couple of times a year in spring and then take a late autumn cut. And then you know by the time it's filtered down to the man on the mower or woman on the mower. Mm. They're like oh well like, presumably I mow this every every other week. Yeah. Don't I? Because it's got you know. So yeah. it's not, and it's no fault of theirs. It's just yeah. the way that, and who enforces that? Then there's very little mechanism to really. I think do one that. of the things they're going to have to put in place with the biodiversity register, with both on-site and off-site, is making sure that there are appropriate mechanisms for monitoring. Yeah. There are resources available for oversight, yeah. 
and, and control. And at the moment, we don't know how those processes are going to work. But um, the aspiration is that there will be an appropriate level of monitoring. But if that's going to fall back to the local authorities, they don't have enough resource to do what they are charged with doing at the moment. Uh, I was talking to an ecologist who's got a service agreement with a local authority yesterday. Her workload's gone up by just under 50% in the last 20 months. And, you know, that's just unsustainable. Mm. And to add another layer of monitoring and managing of the biodiversity uh, requirements is, is not something that's, that's, that's going to be difficult to, it's going to be difficult mm. for her or for anybody else to, to, to manage that. Coming back to your on-site, off-site, as I say, we're looking at um, the mitigation hierarchy, but we also have to consider biodiversity's place within the whole environmental suite, carbon, water quality, air quality, health and well-being, recreation, and all of those other things, which are equally important to society, equally important to place. And therefore, the landscape design, the integration with the ecology, the integration with biodiversity really important. And I think Joe's point about you know understanding how a site is going to operate and how a site should be managed and where the opportunities are, really critical to get that right. I think there will be a lot of opportunities for some really good off-site schemes linked into local nature recovery strategies. And maybe developers need to be thinking more widely than their red line. They need to be thinking about how their site sits into the wider green infrastructure of that landscape, how it sits into the wider local nature recovery uh, network, and potentially where they're having conversations with landowners, how does that landowner's land holding interface with those opportunities? Because obviously if a deal can be done whereby the landowner who has control of the site is also providing some of the solutions for the off-site, that can work very well. It can be a very, very positive conversation and, and, and something that can really be taken forward positively. There are a lot of people in the off-site provision space and a lot of people coming into the off-site provision space. There's still a lot of uncertainty how that's all going to work, the type of agreements that are going to be signed up and so on. And I think um, uh, eventually it will revert back to local authorities like Cambridge probably working with wildlife trusts and other trusted bodies to deliver those sites and, and I can see that sort of taking a lead in, in the major off-site provision. Is it, correct me if I'm wrong, there's that convergence of again that you know, biodiversity in that game which, which we're talking about but then you know you talk about sort of uh, off-site mitigation and how the sort of the changing use of farmland and that kind of that can sort of us leaving Europe that convergence of yeah. those those forces. Um, yeah, I mean, in very very short terms, you know, the transition period for agriculture is going to be running its course over the next four or five years, and you know, your other podcasts have picked up on how farmers are having to think about this change, how they're having to think about regenerative farming, how they're having to think about carbon and other things. And certainly the way they manage their land and the opportunities that potentially interfacing with development activity to deliver biodiversity net gain and to deliver wider environmental net gain, I think offer opportunities on both sides. And that's why I'm saying in this period of uncertainty, not only understanding the baseline on your own site, but also understanding the wider context in which your development site sits, both ownership, both green infrastructure, both opportunities, can be a really positive thing and could potentially lead to some really exciting and interesting uh, challenges. We're involved in one site at the moment where that land ownership, which is adjacent, will potentially deliver some really positive biodiversity net gains, some really positive environmental net gains. And in that particular circumstance, the planning application that has been submitted makes commitments way above the 10% in terms of biodiversity, because the developer has made a decision. They want to do something that is not just the baseline or not just the minimum. They want to do something significantly more than that. Really interesting conversations that are taking place on the back of that. So, so with that though, so with, with 
with that client are they coming from a, a personal you know the numbers add up but there's this altruistic you know as a human being I want to do my bit or you know where does you know where do where do you find people are sitting you know people are sitting let's, let's just look at the numbers let's just crunch the numbers and I think if 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 you're honest, it's all about business. Yeah. You know, everything is when you eventually get down to it. Um, their clients are coming to them and saying, "We need better carbon performance. We need better sustainability. What are you doing about the environment? What are you doing that sets your building and the project that you're bringing forward aside from the competition? Why should we buy from you?" And the environment is becoming a more important part of that buying decision and therefore they need to embed it in their product because if they don't they set themselves at a disadvantage in the marketplace so I think there are a number of drivers and undoubtedly these businesses are not immune to what's happening they know that there is a legal obligation for net zero they know that there are environmental legislation is coming on. They watch David Attenborough. They understand that they have an impact and they have to listen to it from all the stakeholders that will undoubtedly object to their proposals. And so they are more aware of the importance of getting that right. Previously it was about the transport and whether people could get in the car and go to work. Transport is still critically important but less so as we're seeing with the rail strikes that are going on at the moment. People have just been able to say, well, I worked for home for four months or whatever over the last few lockdowns, back to back to square one again. And it hasn't had the impact that it might have done five years ago. Mm. And so things are changing. And, um, you know, environment is coming up the agenda for a number of reasons. So one thing I want to, I want to go back on, you, you talked about, you know, where does you know, going beyond the red line and thinking about how important your site is are you having a lots of those conversations about how an individual site can fit into the wider connectivity? Is that something that clients are aware of or you make them aware? We make them aware in most places. I think that's fair to say, isn't it, Joe? Yeah. I mean, it's not something that is on people's agenda at the moment. However, that is changing. Um, we are now um, with a number of clients, as I said, looking at the Building with Nature standard. The Building with Nature standard is focused around green infrastructure and therefore you have to be able to demonstrate that your site is responding not just to the uh, conditions within its red line but the wider context. Mm -hmm. So that is a, a start of a 10. You're also seeing people having to address green infrastructure policies that are starting to come into local planning authority documents and um, one of the things that we have sought to do and we've had a lot of success over the last few years is getting clients to think about putting a document together that demonstrates how all of these environmental themes come together and how that thinking has been embedded into everything and the, the types of thing so is that where that yeah well, it's, yeah, it's, it's acting as a, a supporting document. It's not part of the environmental statement, but a sort of green infrastructure supporting statement is actually saying all of these environmental elements, all of the th parts of making up the whole green infrastructure of this site, the technical experts have been thinking about this in all of their work. And the obvious ones are, um, you know, the engineers, the drainage, guys, the flood risk guys, how can we make our flood risk integrate with the wider environmental benefits? People providing attractive spaces that people can enjoy and that are accessible and are safe, um, areas where we can enhance biodiversity and you know, making sure that those sort of thoughts are going on. Transport, where are we putting the cycleways? How are we integrating those into our design? How are we separating those away from sensitive biodiversity? Mm. Can we um, do something a bit innovative? We were involved in a very big scheme for a, um, a, a shed developer on one of the Amazon sheds up in the National Forest. Mm. And one of the things that came out of the discussions, in fact, with Sports England, was can we connect up 
two or three footpaths and put a circular route all the way around the development in the green space and connect these around. It's now a three and a half kilometer safe run for dads and kids and mums and kids to take you know, them out on their bikes and everything else. It's proved incredibly successful and it came about through these conversations and thinking about how all these spaces were going to work together. So you mentioned earlier in the uh, podcast, John, about the sort of, you know, when it, when it boils down to it, it does come down to pound shillings and pence and the bottom line. So when we talk about, you know, these biodiversity net gain and implement, you know, implementing it, do you want to give us a bit of an understanding of the cost of that and how that's kind of factored in? Yeah, well, I mean, the easiest way is to look at how it's, how the market is starting to develop for offsite credits. Um, Essentially, if you think about it, what somebody who is providing a credit is doing is guaranteeing to manage a habitat, including all the costs of managing that habitat, for 30 years. Yeah. And that is quite a big commitment, and especially if you try and boil it down to a present-day cost, we're looking at inflation going in which direction? <laughs> so it's a, real, it's a real challenge, you know, when you're looking at costing and budgeting these projects for for 30 years. Um, some of the pathfinders in the biodiversity net gain space, which would be probably Warwickshire County Council, who have their own metric, and also I think Oxford, who have their own metric and their yeah. own system. <coughs> not their own, sorry, not their own metric, but the Trust of Oxfordshire Environment are leading the way. With yeah, that they've led yeah. the way with yeah. that, and they've developed sites. I don't know where they've got to with Cambridge, but those sort of projects have been selling a biodiversity credit, which is the metric measurement, for somewhere in the region of £15,000 for that 30-year window. However, what we're now seeing happening as the private sector starts to get involved and we're starting to see new projects coming forward, we're starting to see very different figures coming forward for those credits. And um, on a couple of projects where I think we've been involved with recently, I think the budget figures that have been put into the uh, spreadsheets for that project and the viability of that project are looking at £30,000 of credit. Yeah. And if you take that outside and over the fence to the person who is providing those biodiversity credits, if they start with a arable field, which might be a piece of arable land that has been probably pushed into arable through agricultural policy over the last 30-40 years, is much more suited to being wet grassland or wet species rich grassland there is probably an opportunity to develop somewhere in the region of five or six credits per hectare for that sort of site other habitats less and one of the things very close to my heart as a forestry commission director is that woodland is slightly prejudiced in this space not because it doesn't provide a habitat with all of the benefits that many of the other habitats have mm. but because it is discounted back from the time that it is anticipated to reach its target condition, which is 30 years, I think, Joe, isn't yeah, it? 32. So it's, yeah. it's, it, 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 it doesn't score so highly. So Joe would be saying to me, well, I can create five or six credits to hectare if I put grassland in here. Mm. Um, but John, if you put woodland in there, you might be lucky if you get two credits, yeah. which does not seem bad slightly bad. bad. Not, yeah, not, no. not quite so bad. But it yes. has improved, but yes, it, it, it is significantly different. So um, as far as the cost is concerned, it is quite a substantial cost. Um, you can never be, uh, um, you know, you, you, your, your metric is going to give you a number of credits that the site is either short or has in has in 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 in, in surplus mm. for its project um, but roughly speaking a baseline of arable land and hedgerows is going to be scoring somewhere in the region of two to three credits to the hectare yeah. so that's the main site if 75 percent of that site gets covered with concrete and effectively goes from a score of two and a half to a score of zero you can start seeing that that extra 25% has got to work very hard yeah. to get to either back to the baseline position or a 10% net gain. Mm. So you're almost certainly going to be looking at, at, at some level of offsite. Mm. And it is not unusual for that to be 20, 30 credits you know, on a reasonably sized project. And if that's the case, 
obviously there is a significant financial uh, commitment that needs to be yeah. you know, budgeted into the project purely for dealing with the biodiversity net gain. Mm. And it is difficult, like region by region, because as John said, some areas, Cambridgeshire being one that's really leading the way, Warwickshire obviously one of the real sort of early pioneers of, of biodiversity net gain, um, where I have clients that come to me and we, we've got this issue and, and we're sort of saying, right, we're going to have to go off site. I can go to a provider very easily and they go, yep, here we go, it's going to cost X, off you go. And, and everything's kind of taken care of. They pay the money. That's what a developer wants majority yeah. of the time. They want to just pay the money and, and this is when you say leave. this is the kind of you're talking about the private market, the, the, these kind of Yeah, so you have the Environment Bank, obviously one of the sort of national kind of leaders, but also locally you have um, sort of preferred suppliers. Quite often I'll engage with the local authority and sort of say, Look, we're going to need to go off site. Have you got someone locally? that you would like us to use or that is currently trying to set up Habitat Bank? Because I think that's an important aspect of it. Again, thinking about like connectivity. Mm. And again, when you're going off site, the further away you go from a site, your credits get downvalued. So if you're not going off site locally, mm. then those credits don't go, don't go so far effectively. Yeah. Um, and the current space we're in at the moment, because we're still in that transition, the Environment Act yeah. isn't in, the market isn't quite ready no, for us. Yeah. I've got a site in Essex where, you know, we've gone right, we need to go, we've tr really tried hard to do something within the red line. We really can't, we've lost units, we've really tried to do as much as we can, we're, we're still at a, a slight loss. Mm. Um, I've gone to the local authority and they just go, oh, well, um, we've got a couple, you know, you could try these people, could try, but, but ultimately even the environment bank couldn't help us they didn't have anything in the local area mm. so, so then I sort of the client saying to me well what do we do and I'm like, so maybe create your own yeah well so <laughs> then which we is did. what some of them are looking to do yeah. but it comes back to that point about understanding the context of your site yeah and understanding that the uh, agricultural structure of the way that land is managed is going to change and needs to change and whereas probably a conversation that might have taken place five years ago, maybe 10 years ago, would have been about, oh, you need me, therefore I'm ransoming you and all the rest of it. I think there's a very different conversation space that potentially exists now. And if the, if the party that is coming forward with the land for the development, so maybe part of a large farm or a private estate or a private ownership, if there's an opportunity to do something across those lines, there are some really interesting ways in which that can work from both sides, mm. not only in relation to how the deal might be structured, but how the how the existing land occupiers can be supported. Often mm. private estates and large farms don't want to see their labour force cut. They don't want to yeah. see people losing their jobs. They don't want to see their farm being split up. And therefore, if a different revenue stream can be applied and it's, it's local and it has connectivity, it's understanding that space there can be some really interesting opportunities and I would encourage people to not be frightened of those conversations so it comes back to understanding the context of your site not just the red line yeah. how does it fit into that wider landscape how does it fit into the wider land ownership how, you know how does it fit into the wider local nature recovery networks and green infrastructure strategies a lot of local authorities have got good green infrastructure strategies in place which say connection between point A and point B, really good thing. If your site sits between point A and point B and is a blockage, how much is that worth in terms of its environmental performance? Starts to tick a lot of the boxes in relation to the metric. But also, it starts to waken up those stakeholders. Well, we've been trying to do that for hundreds of years, or well, not hundreds of years, <laughs> but we've been trying to do that forever. Yeah. If you guys can facilitate that, suddenly the conversation is taking place in a different place. And there's less, you know, you're, you're having a positive engaged conversation with those stakeholders who might otherwise be objecting to your proposals or making your proposals difficult or, or, or causing issues. So it's changing the conversation can often be the biggest value that some of these um, you know, the need to look at this now mm. is uh, are opening up to new conversations. 
You're half. It sounds like you know you're half ecologists and half sort of just sort of not diplomats, <laughs> but you're like you're literally the sort of the hub for, for all of this, aren't you? You literally sort of bring everybody together, talking, trying to talk in people, you know, people's mm. language or different, you know. Well, I think that's. I mean, I'll, I'll let Joe sort of give her perspective on this, but I think that's why we've been able to work quite well together over the last few years in actually looking at these proposals and these projects and these opportunities from slightly different angles. And I think we are now starting to see some of the, the development clients and the planning consultants and, and, and the stakeholders understanding that there needs to be more engagement and bringing people together. And one of the things that I've been very focused on over the last few years is trying to bring what I've termed on a few sites the green gang together. Not just <laughs> the greeners, but the um, people that are in charge of the drainage, people that are in charge of the public rights away, people that are in charge of education, people that are in charge of heritage and, and all of these things. Getting them into the same space to say, well, look, if this proposal does, t does go forward, how can we work together to maximise the benefits that can flow out of it? What are the real requirements and where can we make, where can we make opportunities happen? And it's been always amazing to me how positive those conversations have been. And also, what's been quite surprising to me personally is how often people have said, oh, we don't normally have these conversations. And I'm just thinking, well, why don't you have these conversations? Because they potentially open so many doors. I think that feeds into the um, environmental benefits from nature tool. Yeah. All those little, all the green gang. Do you refer to them? We've got the headline for the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> changing, the, changing the name of the podcast, the green gang. That reminds yeah. me of some kind of cartoon with the, the vegetables. Yeah, probably. Some sort of gang. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, they might not want to be labelled like that, but anyway. <laughs> no. Um, so the sort of pilot scheme that Natural England um, are currently running um, environmental um, benefit from nature's uh, from nature tool um, pulls together a lot, lot of those strands. So it sort of is an extension of the biodiversity metric, and um, your starting point is that you have to have a net gain. Yeah. So that's your kind of like tick done. But then on top of that, what other things actually can you demonstrate through an even bigger Excel spreadsheet? <laughs> um, really, really big one actually. Um, what other things can you demonstrate that this proposed development is delivering and it considers all of those things so you've got obviously all the things we've mentioned previously but water quality um, you know protection from flooding soil structure soil quality um, looking at recreation is a really big one on there yeah. so um, an act public access mm. so if you've got a public footpath accessing that site you know can you improve on that can you sort of perhaps put do some permissive routes that then like connect to another public access and, and provide that through the development um, and then on top of that education so again can you provide is it an education facility or even as part of your development can you provide education can you put some interpretation boards up through your public access or whatever um, heritage obviously is a big one um, yeah so that's looking at much wider aspect and not just going oh from a biodiversity point yeah. of view we're ticking all the boxes um but we are actually then also having that much holistic much more holistic approach to yeah. the development very much tied in with the building with nature yeah. side but what what's quite interesting is that if you go back to the 25-year environment plan it doesn't say um biodiversity net gain paragraph one subsection one says every development will deliver environmental net gain okay, that's good. which is quite interesting yeah. they went down the biodiversity route for the environment bill simply because the wider metric was too complex mm. but I think there is a genuine feeling that the direction of travel is coming to looking at these wider environmental and ecosystem services and natural capital benefits mm. and making sure that they are embedded into these projects and it's been really useful to see how those are shaping some of these proposals and um, one of the things I mean we've, we've, we've actually got through a podcast and hardly mentioned the pandemic but when the pandemic first struck and when we were all in lockdown 
it became incredibly important to people to get access to space yeah. within, um, you know, 100 meters of where they were. And so many places were finding that that connectivity, that, um, you know, those access routes, those mechanisms to get to that space were really poorly designed. You know, somebody who's maybe only 100 meters away from the park has to walk 500 meters through a industrial development to get to that park. And this is where the sort of environmental benefits of nature tool and the way that people are thinking around this whole space are going to change things. What's the context of the site in terms of green infrastructure? How can we connect things? How can we make this function as a place? And how can we do that effectively? And I think people are looking at that much more important, you know, it's much more important in their decisions. And your argument to the developer is, this is going to improve the value of your site. Yeah. This is going to improve its saleability. This is going to improve its performance mm -hmm. in so many aspects. Um, and, you know, people want that connection. They want to be able to get into nature. And um, uh, so these things are, are hugely important and very important to us as, as professionals, you know, we got into this this industry not necessarily to make huge amounts of money because that's not the type of industry it is, but with because we have a genuine, you know, a, a genuine passion for the environment. We want to see things done right. We want to see things changed, and we want to see things uh, managed more positively. Mm. And I think that's very important. And it's really in the culture of the whole Nicholson's Lockhart Garrett team. The, the, we're, we're professionals in the environmental space and we want to leave it in a better condition than we found it. Yeah. Well, I think that seems like the natural point to stop it, really, because I think we could, again, we could, we could, we could go on for, we've probably been going for an hour, we could go for another three, couldn't we? <laughs> we could. Um, well, it's been very interesting, and thank you very much. Cool, thank you for your time, guys. Thank you, Dan. Cool.